You're listening to the Growth Experts Podcast. So if you're looking to 10X your business by learning proven growth strategies, you're in the right place. During my interviews with top CEOs, entrepreneurs, and marketers, I dig deep to uncover the real strategies, hacks, and tools to help you achieve your goals. And I'm your host, Dennis Brown. Hey, have you ever wondered how I generate thousands of inbound leads per year using LinkedIn? Well, this episode is sponsored by my guide, The Ultimate Guide to Generating Inbound Leads with LinkedIn. This is the definitive guide on how to consistently generate inbound leads using LinkedIn and social selling. So if you want a copy of that guide, just send a text to 44222 with the word L-I guide, all one word, L-I guide to 44222, or you can go to my website at askdennisbrown.com forward slash guide. Now let's get on with the show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And today we have yet another amazing guest. She's a repeat guest. Her name is Elaine Pofelt. She's a Forbes journalist and the author of The Million Dollar One-Person Business. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dennis. It's great to be back. I should say welcome back because you were here in episode 24. And that was, I think, right around the time when your book released, right? And we talked about how to grow a million-dollar one-person business. So if anybody wants to check that out, refer back. Again, that's episode 24. But today, just to kind of tease you guys a little bit, Elaine has done an update on the book, right? She's added more case studies. And she's, and we're going to talk about not only some of those case studies of one-person million-dollar business, but we're also going to talk about how they were impacted by the pandemic, some of the pivots they've made, how they've diversified their revenue. We're going to try to pack as much of this in as we can. So what have you been doing throughout this pandemic? Give us a, how has it impacted your business? Before we dive into all these case studies, how has it impacted your business? Because you're an author and a journalist. So talk to us about a little bit about that. Well, I've been very busy, Dennis. My four kids have been home for online school and I've been running my business and working on my next book, Tiny Business, Big Money. So I, I've been up to my gills with the <laughs> with activity, but good stuff. And I've enjoyed the time with my kids. It's been nice to have them at home, although they're very happy now to be back in five-day-a-week school. Yeah, for sure. So tell us, give us a quick, quick look into your next book. When does it release? It comes out September 2022. And what it looks at are businesses the next stage beyond the million-dollar one-person business. They're seven-figure businesses that have either started to hire employees because it just makes sense for them, or they have a team of contractors that they work with on a very recurring basis where they have to manage a team. So it's looking at how you make that transition without losing the great lifestyle that we talked about in the million dollar one person business. Great. What's the title of that again? Tiny business? Tiny business, big money. Love it. All right, cool. So that doesn't release till September of 2022. Yeah, books so are slow. A year and a half. Year and a half <laughs> now, slowly. Okay. So we'll have you back on to talk about that because I'm really interested in seeing this is where a lot of businesses struggle is going from that solopreneur, you know, one or two people into five or 10 or 15 employees. It's a big hurdle and a lot of people can't get through it. So it'll be interesting to hear your hear your take on it and how people are succeeding doing it. So, but for today, for today, why don't you why don't we dig right in? Because we've got a good amount of information to cover. And I'd love to hear some of these new case studies. And then again, I want to talk about how the pandemic has impacted some of your, you know, your previous case studies and how they adjusted and how they survived and thrived. And let's dig into all that. So 
take it wherever you want. You want to talk about a new case study from the book or you lead the way? Sure. Well, one thing that I did do at the same time I've been working on Tiny Business, Big Money is updating this book and going back to everybody in the book about how they made it through the pandemic. And it was really fascinating to me as a business owner myself to see what they had done. One example was Joey Healy. He was an eyebrow stylist, started out as a freelance eyebrow stylist going to people's apartments in Manhattan. Then he started licensing his styling method to other stylists. And he developed a small line of makeup through outsourced manufacturing, but that was a small sidelight. And as his business grew, he rented a store in New York City near New York University, prime real estate, and he had five employees. So he grew beyond the one-person business since the time that I interviewed him originally. Then the pandemic struck, and he was a business that could not open. And New York City was hit very hard by the pandemic. So he started thinking about, how am I going to make it through this whole situation? And he went down in the basement of the store, and he in a clean, dry storage area, he had his makeup, which he hadn't really been aggressively selling. It was more of an add-on to the in-store purchases. And he said, this is how we're going to make it through the pandemic. And he built up his e-commerce store. He did keep his publicist on retainer and the publicist started getting him placements in magazines. And I think he was on I want to say Good Morning America, where he spoke about styling your eyebrows at home because now everybody was on Zoom calls. And so he built that up. He also started offering virtual consultations where you could send in pictures of your brows and Joey himself would give you a personalized lesson or you could go with one of his stylists and you could order the makeup to have the exact makeup he recommended. And that was how he made it through. And he, he was hit hard, but he now added these revenue streams and now things are opening back up in New York and his, his business will be stronger than ever. Another business that was really- Before we, before we go forward ahead. with that one. No, no. I love that. I love that example. And, and what you said at the end is really, really important, right? Because of what we had to go through, all of us, you know, the people that were able to successfully pivot and make these adjustments and adapt, right? You know, I think at the end of the day, as painful as it was for everybody and not trying to, you know, downplay all the, all the deaths and all the things that happened, but from a business level, you know, I think- the businesses are going to be stronger. I know my business is stronger because of it, because of things that I've changed. I know a lot of my friends and colleagues and, and people that I, you know, in my circles, their businesses are stronger because they had to adjust. Some had minor adjustments, some had major adjustments, like like the example you just had. I mean, this guy had to close his storefront and basically, you know, start an entire e-commerce business from scratch. So I love that. And I think the diversification of revenue from brick and mortar to having some sort of a digital component is something that I'm seeing a lot of, right? Hair salons and and all these different, you know, retail brick and mortar type solutions are coming up with creative ideas on how to, you know, on how to, God forbid, plan for the future in the event this were to ever happen again. Because I mean, hey, let's cross our fingers and hope it never happens in our lifetime. But if it does, are they going to be prepared? I think it's mandatory, Dennis, what you're saying. Every business now has to have revenue diversification. In my new book, I've been looking at some areas that work very well as tiny businesses, meaning up to 20 employees. And there are certain areas like manufacturing that used to be closed to a home-based micro business. But now through outsourcing and all the online resources, 
there are a lot of ancillary types of things you can add onto a business. So like Joey manufacturing his eyebrow makeup, he doesn't have a plant where he makes it himself. He outsources that. And that it's something that takes a little bit of planning. So if you had a restaurant and you wanted to sell your hot sauce online, you're going to have to come up with a formulation. You'll have to work with professionals to design the bottle and that sort of thing. But now as we come out of the pandemic, this is a really good time for business owners to be thinking about how do I add on something that I know I can sell even if the government has to shut the businesses down because you really don't have the freedom. If the, you know, if the government says it's not safe to be open, no matter what your personal opinion is, you might not be legally allowed to open. So you need to do something. Another area that I found was some brick and mortar type businesses were branching out into online services. One entrepreneur who is one of the original million dollar one person businesses from the first article where I profiled them, Dan Mazaritsky, he runs Fitness on the Go. It's a personal training business in Toronto, Canada that has hundreds of personal trainers. They were training people in gyms. Well, the gyms got closed down. So how are they going to do this? Fortunately, he got them set up very quickly doing online lessons and groups of people were meeting on there. So like maybe a group of friends all over the world or all over the country would meet for a workout together. Now, Canada has opened up somewhat again. So some of the trainers have gone back to training people in the gyms, but there is a certain portion of people that like the online lessons now. So he's kept that too. So now he has an added revenue stream, which he can ramp up to 100% of his business as he did during the pandemic. Also, in some ways, it's more profitable sometimes to teach things online. So if even if you don't want to have a product, thinking about, can I do this online in some new ways? Or can I scale up what I do online? So for instance, instead of doing one-on-one lessons, could you do a class with 12 people at your music school to make it more affordable to all 12? That's the way people need to be thinking right now. Yeah, I agree. I th- I, I love what he did in just converting it online. I mean, you see you know, businesses like Peloton and others that are doing these virtual workouts based on different types of equipment or different niches or whatever the case may be. So I think that, you know, it's good time. It was good timing for Peloton, of course. So, you know, because of the pandemic and they've taken advantage of it. And I'm happy to see that, that one of your case studies was able to do that too. You know, another example beyond going just in these virtual coaching or virtual types of service businesses is for, you know, if you're a consultant or you're a service provider or whatever the case may be, is online courses. I mean, people have been doing online courses forever, but I think a lot of people hesitate that, you know, they have this expertise or they have this experience or they have this knowledge. And for whatever reason, there's that barrier to entry to creating and selling that course. And I can tell you from a personal opinion, I'll give you a quick example. I had my B2B service company I started my last B2B service company. It was a logistics company in 2003. Grew that company to about 80 million in sales and sold it in 2016. But along the way, I created a course. This was 10 years ago. It was a small course I sold for $98. I didn't do much with it. I did some promotion and a little bit of blogging and stuff like that. Since then, and this is going to kind of blow you away. Since then, that little course in the last 10 years has generated over $2 million. Holy moly. Congratulations, Dan. And that was while I was building my other business, right? So, I mean, that's now your mileage may vary, right? And I'm not saying that you're going to create a course and sell $2 million. You might only sell $20,000 or $200,000, but either way, 
you know, an online course is another great way to diversify your revenue, especially when you have that unique experience and knowledge and the ability to help transform people remotely. And then in the pandemic, I think course consumption went through the roof because people were home and they had time. And, and I think it, I think that's another example of a great pivot for, you know, especially service-based businesses. Oh, that's a great idea, Dennis. What I'm seeing is there's a variety too of, of media you can use. Sometimes people are using a platform like Podia or Teachable. Some people are selling PDF courses and doing well with that. So if you're not a techie, you don't have to be intimidated. A PDF course is not that hard to create. You just need a designer to make it look pretty. And there's a lot of people that underestimate how much knowledge they have because what's easy for you is hard for someone else, right? What's easy for my bookkeeper is hard for me. And maybe it's hard for my bookkeeper to do copywriting, but I can do it in my sleep. You know, so, so don't take for granted what you know, whatever is you know, easy for you can be taught to somebody too, because you can break it down in a way that simplifies it. And maybe there are even several courses in you that you don't even know about. One trend I've noticed with courses is there is a lot of competition in the space. There's a lot of add-ons that people are introducing, like a masterclass or one-on-one coaching or group coaching, because sometimes if someone does a PDF course, for instance, or even an online course, they're not going to get as much out of it without feedback. Some people do email feedback, but if you have a feedback mechanism, it gives you another revenue stream for the people that want a little more handholding or just like the human interaction more or not as self-motivated and need an accountability partner. So that's that's another thing to think about. Plus it gives you some interaction too as an entrepreneur. Yeah, for sure. There's there's a million different ways to skin it. And ultimately it's packaging up your knowledge or your experience, your expertise, and somehow sharing it with, you know, a much larger audience than even you could have locally, like that example of the of the storefront in New York City. I mean, you know, he the scale that he now has, the ability to have from a scale perspective is hundreds, thousands X over where he was before with just having one retail and the risk, right? If he wanted to duplicate that retail in Miami and and LA and Chicago and all these different major metropolitan areas, that's a lot of risk. That's a lot of capital. That's a lot of that's a lot of logistics to go into it. And it could take a long time to do that. So yeah, I definitely see some some businesses being stronger after this because of the creativity they had to apply just to survive, right? And so I think sometimes that's that's just the just the kick in the pants we need to really take a deep dive into our business and find out what the real weaknesses are and and acknowledge them and then make some you know adapt to it. So what other case studies? Tell us about some other case studies that you think the audience might be interested in. Well, there's some that have an innovative business model because by popular demand, they added more in the area of professional services. There are a lot of people in B2B businesses that get stuck in trading time for dollars, as people say, right? And they don't know how to get out of that. One person who had an innovative approach was Steve Ferreira. He started Ocean Audit and he had worked for many years in this area of auditing shipping bills very specific niche area, right? But he knew it inside out. And so what he does is he identifies errors. If say JCPenney ordered 10,000 shirts from overseas and the shipping company sends the bill to JCPenney, often there are mistakes in them and he's an expert so he can spot them. He'll go to JCPenney and say, you know, I've identified a $250,000 error in your shipping bill, which are their public documents. 
I'll tell you what it is and collect it for you. If I get a 50% commission, he's at almost $2 million as a one-man business. He runs it out of a co-working space and I think currently his home. It's a great business. But the reason he makes so much money is he didn't charge by the hour. He charged what the service is worth, right? Because JCPenney doesn't have to pay him any money up front. They only pay, you know, they pay him once he collects the money. So it's found money for them. There's no reason for them not to use him. And now what he's done is he's automated it. He hired a web developer to help him with spotting the errors. So he's even more efficient. He does have a team of contractors helping him with outreach and that sort of thing. But it's like, to me, that's the essence of the thinking of building a million dollar one person business. It's not accepting the conventional wisdom that this is how auditors bill. So therefore I have to build that way. He built his own way and it makes total sense to the customer because of how much they recoup. Another person who's in the book who is really, I learned a lot from is Jamie Jay. And he, he has a podcasting agency and it does custom podcasts. And what he, he's assembled a team of different types of specialized virtual assistants. Some of them will do the web icons, you know, to promote the podcast and some of them do the technical support. And it's a subscription-based model. So if I were to start a podcast and I don't want to handle all the back-end stuff, I pay him a certain amount per month. And I have a single point of contact on the team who then farms out the different parts of my projects to the appropriate person on the team. And it's sort of like a, a quality control expert who won't send it to me, the client, unless it's good. And that enabled, he did so well with it. He put a lot of systems in place. He documented them. And when I originally wrote about him for Forbes, he was at about 300000 in revenue. And then I was recording something and I contacted him to get some advice about the technology. And he said, Elaine, you know those businesses you write about, those million-dollar one-person businesses? And I said, yes. <laughs> and so he was on track to be at a million. And we talked a lot about how he went from that zone, which is very achievable for a lot of professionals to get to 300000 to the million dollar level. And part of it was the, the team of virtual assistants. Part of it was putting the systems in place, but there was also third party recognition. So he started applying for like different rankings and things like that online and places that would give him a rating based on verified customers. And that helped pull him up in Google. And interestingly, what he found was the leads he got in that way were more profitable than the leads he got from happy customers, which is really counterintuitive. But it was like all these things rowing in the same direction that pulled him up. And I think a lot of things in life are like that. It's not, it's not just one thing that you do. It's like getting a lot of moving parts, moving the right way. And there's sort of a chemistry to all of it that comes just from applying yourself every day the same way you applied yourself to this podcast, Dennis, because you're, you're, you're up to like episode 300 now, right? You were at 24 when we spoke. And you, you told me before the show that the average podcast dies after seven episodes, right? Just simply showing up and working on different things, not even that systematically, but just consistently sometimes, it all comes together. And the thing I've really taken away from now, I've probably interviewed over time, maybe 70 plus million-dollar one-person businesses and partnerships is that whether they actually acknowledge it or not, they treat the business almost as a practice. It's a learning laboratory, kind of like going to a martial arts class or a yoga class. You know, I do Taekwondo and I do yoga. And the showing up 
is the magic because sometimes you you come and work on things. Everything is going wrong. Your customers are mad at you or whatever. You missed a deadline or your computer is not working or your text messages or I don't know, there's some glitch and you're so frustrated, but you show up the next day and work on your business again. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, one day some insight comes where you're like, oh, I should charge a commission and not by the hour or something hits you just by the fact that you kept showing up. And I think that to me, that's the most important takeaway of talking to all these people is the consistency of effort. It isn't always 10 hours a day. Sometimes they just show up for one hour certain days, but they do, they show up. And there's a magic and a mystery, the same way you suddenly can do a backbend. If you keep going to yoga for two years and you couldn't do the backbend, then one day you come, you're like, I could do the backbend. I don't know why I could do it today. And you do it. Yeah. A couple of comments on that. One big shout out to Jamie J. We've been friends for a long time. And as a matter of fact, he he might be the person who connected me to you a few years ago. I think, I think it might've been Jamie. I've known Jamie for a long time. Great guy. I think, what is the name of his business? Isn't it bottleneck? I thought it was something bottleneck, like bottleneck, uh, bottleneck consultants, I think, or bottleneck. Yeah, yeah um, it's bottleneck something. Shout out to Jamie. Sorry, we don't, we didn't, weren't able to get the name right. And then secondly, you know, you brought up a really good point about the consistency. And, and I say this all the time because I get a lot of questions from entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs, startups, things of that nature. And, you know, they're always looking for the, the newest tactic or the newest strategy, their newest hack or the newest whatever. When in reality, the biggest reason why I think most small businesses fail is they just quit too early, right? Yeah. They just quit too early. They don't get through those early stages. And of course, not every business is viable. I get that. Not every idea is going to work and that's okay. And sometimes you got to pivot and sometimes you got to regroup. But ultimately, I think what you said, for example, the consistency and the learning curve that you go through when you do something for a year or two or three or four or five years is a huge advantage. So. All right. So great. So listen, let's talk about one more case study, one more that you think is compelling for the one person business, the 1 million one person business, whether that had, you know, whether it's just something new or whether it was someone that was able to do another pivot due to the pandemic and was able to, uh, to really adapt throughout this. Trying to think of one that that's a little bit different. Well, Nazlia Yunus was kind of interesting. She was um, a young woman. She's about 21, I think, who she got into selling jewelry online and she was, her family are immigrants. And so she was kind of lonely in this country. And she wound up growing her business by reaching out to Instagram influencers and getting, you know, getting them to wear the jewelry. And I thought, you know, you have to have a little bit of moxie with some of these businesses, right? Like I'm sure it's very intimidating to come to another country and, you know, try to navigate influencers or things like that. It just is, right? Because it's it's complicated and, you know, who's who and all of that stuff. But she just was bold and and sent the jewelry out, right? And her business got to 1 million. And, and I, I think there's some element of that where you have to get past yourself and take a risk and get into the ring and just try it. And if they say no to you, who cares? Right. But if they say yes to you, it's incredible. And it really opens a lot of other doors. Cause once you have one person saying yes, then you can market to others. And, you know, they see on your Instagram page. Not everybody is in the business of working with Instagram influencers, but I, I think that's an important element of all of this is like 
everybody who has a small business is out there trying and making themselves vulnerable and putting themselves out there. If you're really unwilling to do that, you can't have a small business because in some way you, you do have to make yourself vulnerable to people saying no. But once you get past it and you develop a thicker skin, it allows you to build your business way past the level that everybody is at the beginning. And it, it hurts a little bit sometimes when people say no. I mean, I'm in the I'm a freelance journalist, right? So think of how many pitches I send out that like end up in an editor's inbox. They don't even bother to respond. Even you know when you write a book, right? A book gets sent out to different publishing houses. There's rejection, and it's hard to deal with rejection. It's hard for every single person. But I found everybody in this book got past that, and they said it's worth it to me to build this business, and I'll I'll put myself out there and try it. And if I make mistakes or whatever, so so be it. But there's no other way to build this business. And and to me, that was inspiring because I thought, I don't know if I had the courage to reach out to Instagram influencers, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and try to get them to wear something I designed, right? It, it, you know, it's like, it's tough when yeah, you're creative, I think that, creative people are sensitive. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. And the saying that came to mind was fortune favors the bold, right? I mean, that old saying fortune favors the bold and you have, so you have to be bold. And I think today we talked about some people that were very bold and how they built their million dollar businesses. They took some huge risks and some calculated risks and then how they were bold and adapting during a difficult time during the pandemic, going from retail location to e-commerce going from, you know, doing coaching in the gym and training people in a gym to virtual to all the examples you shared with us today. I think it's amazing. I love what you're doing. I love the case studies. I love how you followed up and updated them. And I'm really excited for your next book. Why don't you let everybody know how they can get a copy of the current book, The Million Dollar One Person Business, and then we'll wrap it up for today. Sure. Well, it's it's available on major bookstores like Amazon and Barnes and Noble and you know, pretty much all the major booksellers. And I, you know, I hope people will write to me. I'm a journalist and it makes me a better journalist when I hear what's on your mind and what questions you have, because I can reach out to some of these sources and ask them if I don't know the answer to a question. I, I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter under my full name, Elaine Pofelt, which is in the show notes. So I do invite you to write to me. I do write back. It might take a few days. As I mentioned, my kids are home half the day for virtual school, but, <laughs> but I eventually do get caught up. Dennis, I love what you're doing. It's so great the way that you're a catalyst bringing people together. That's so important for the growth of one-person businesses to have access to information and podcasts are a game changer. You know, you can listen to them in the car while you're walking and suddenly grow your knowledge exponentially and and also just stay inspired, right? It's so hard sometimes to run a small business. It's so great, but it's so hard. And just sometimes a podcast can change your whole mood for the day and help you get that little push to be bold and to go after an opportunity that really matters to you. Love it. Well, listen, everybody, fortune favors the bold. Thank you so much for being here, Elaine. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. And uh, take care of those kids on the half day. I know you got to go pick up your kids. <laughs> thank you, Dennis. Great to be here. Listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. I truly appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the podcast, then do me a huge favor. Click the subscribe button now and please leave me a review. It would mean a lot to me.